white, five soaked almonds. My hand instinctively reached for the bowl holding the five soaked almonds. This habit took root 40 years ago when my mother started feeding me soaked almonds every day. They'll help improve your memory, she would always say in a matter of fact way and watch me chew on a mouthful of almonds obediently. My mother is gone, but the habit lives on. It was a part of my son's routine too. I always expected him to chew the almonds without a hint of protest. I wanted him to trust the benefits of the sweet white interior of these brown-skinned nuts. Then one day, he left too. The five soaked almonds have stayed in the bowl, staring back at me inquiringly day after day. They greet my fingers with a familiar texture, a texture that gets altered from hard to soft overnight. I always find the almonds more amiable and cheerful the following morning. The skin reverse aging miraculously, a smooth exterior replacing the wrinkly, rigid one that was soaked in the bowl the previous night. I enjoy it when the almonds relent at the slightest insistence of my fingernails and peel back readily to offer a delicious palatable white interior. The color on the inside is the same non-color as my white linen shirts. I usually forgive and ignore the odd bitter almond whose taste lingers like some of my memories. In fact, Bitterness and I have learned to acquire a taste for each other. I sometimes let my hand linger in the bowl of soaked almonds, but it never comes back younger. The elixir of water only works on the almonds. My fingers look even more wrinkled. I sit down in my armchair to munch the handful. It's funny. Here I am, a man seeking to forget everything, yet biting into the good-for-memory almonds my mother prescribed. My own contradictions baffle me at times. I should stop procrastinating. It's time to bring out the ironing board and iron my demanding linen shirts. All six of them. All six white shirts that must go into my suitcase. I have not altered much in this room since my wife Aruna left. A 15 watt CFL has been scattering its silvery white fortunes for over a year, but its magnanimity fails to cheer the room. Much to my dismay, it, it gives the linen shirts an exaggeratedly crumpled look. I felt it so often. This Lack of purpose that creeps into everything and colors all the objects in the room. The light pries into my melancholy. It scars the lines etched by time that I often notice on my face when I look in the mirror. It questions the gloom that has settled like soot over everything in this house. I prefer to iron all my clothes before making a neat pile in the suitcase. Yes, 
it is another one of those eccentricities that come with age like flies swarming to open wounds don't we all have them though eccentricities at least i'm admitting mine honestly it frustrates me no end when things are not what they claim to be for instance why wrinkle free is not really wrinkle free and why even the most expensive suitcases crush my crisply ironed clothes these guilty suitcases leave temporary dents and marks with their stifling belts and restricting buckles on my shirts it compels me to fight the unwanted creases and marks with an iron again and again i know my obsession borders on being a compulsive disorder relationships too i believe develop deep creases and wrinkles over time but i have failed to iron them perhaps that is why i live alone and divorced in this matchbox apartment in mumbai staleness has begun to set in off late and it is time to stir things a bit in my banal retired life i'm packing a suitcase to visit hosharpur my ancestral town in punjab it is a quiet lazy town tucked away from urgencies of ambition and metropolitan struggles it is a quaint place where plains end and hills begin where my adolescence ended and adulthood seized me with great fury i admit my hands are unwilling to fold the clothes and stack them in the suitcase and a sense of reluctance is weighing me down i'm not so sure about revisiting my childhood also the last almond is still in my mouth and my thoughts drift back to the silver bowl with five soaked almonds that lay by my bedside in the old ancestral haveli that stood close to the bank colony it overlooked the hills giving the grandest view of the sunset and sunrise every day involuntarily i saunter through my memories and the guava tree that stood in the backyard reconstructs itself in my imagination branch by branch leaf by leaf in all its glory with the little army of insects scurrying up and down the highway of its trunk the guava tree would peer through the window casting long shadows sending inviting wafts from ripe guavas its branches would poke the room into laughter laughter i've not heard in a long time the laughter of my room the carefree laughter of my childhood but why am i longing for it today all of a sudden beyond the drawn curtains of the only window in my room now is the same view day after day life striving outside to break free from banality i sense this in the purposeful gait of mumbaikers headed in all directions groping and grabbing at hope and opportunity inside the room i shrey malhotra who also ran the same race have finished ironing and packing exhausted i 
lean against a wall that wears my past in black and white photographs. I call it the chessboard of my life. These are photographs of a chronicled existence, punctuated by an occasional happy moment. I distinctly remember telling Aruna to leave behind only black and white pictures when she moved out after our inevitable separation. She had nodded and obliged with a smile, burning away the 5,000-odd photographs that were in color. She said she did not want to carry any along. Closure comes naturally to some, but remains a haunting demon for others. It's not the pictures or the bridges she burned, but these framed reminders that she left behind. They strangle me each time I cross them in the passage or touch the wall next to the staircase. I'd always wondered why Aruna would sit with a pair of scissors and doctor each photograph. I loathe the idea of manipulating memorabilia. It is supposed to be the other way round, isn't it? I would often argue with Aruna. You snatch the scissors from our son, fearing he will injure himself. You, yet you sit and cut away unwanted people and backdrops from photographs and proudly hang these bleeding, amputated memories on the walls. She would carry on, ignoring my remark. She never agreed and I cared lesser with each passing day in every added photograph on the wall. To me, the decor of the house was of as much concern as the upholstery of a rented hotel room. I came in each evening from work, ate, slept and went away the next morning. Cigarettes have been better companions. They always light up a dark, damp moment and have done it reliably through these trying decades. I light one now, spiraling down the nicotine vortex. I contemplate whether all the apartments in the building are filled with similar charades and illusions of a perfect life. A hard drag and beyond the smoke screens I weave. I focus my gaze on the Mona Lisa facing my recliner. She smiles back. Is it concern or sarcasm? I gave her that smile. I recall that long night when Ankur left home. I had worked for hours to put this 5,000-piece jigsaw together. Sitting in a cloud of smoke, drifting to the song of nicotine, turning endless white paper rolls into grey ash. My hands had worked like mediators to get the edges of random pieces of the puzzle to meet and agree. Ankur had flown to Australia for good to pursue his dreams. I had worked on the puzzle like a man obsessed desperate to give Mona Lisa her smile back. All the while I was at the puzzle, I could sense that Aruna was awake in the bedroom, staring at the ceiling blankly, her smile fractured beyond restoration. I had made no attempt to mend it. 
the void left by our son's departure started filling with the tar of silence and darkness that night. During subsequent nights, it became a routine. I have been contemplating emptying this ashtray since Sunday, stubbing another cigarette into the pile of ash and half-smoked cigarettes. I think these cigarettes are my extravagance with time. A strange analogy I draw. I count 365 slow rings of smoke rising and filling the room at a leisurely pace like days in a year. Wasted weeks pass me by like half-smoked 52 stubs in the ashtray. And each exhaled breath, hmm, shrouded in white, is accounting for every minute that burns and dissolves me inside out, then outside in. But who cares about time when you're burning slowly like nicotine? My past is beckoning me in a strong voice today. The grandfather clock in the corner is driving nails of its tick-tock, tick-tock into each minute's coffin. And it suddenly reminds me of the clock tower in Hoshiarpur. It was a landmark, and until I had turned ten and had developed a strong sense of direction, I was convinced that all roads in the town began from and terminated at the clock tower. I would often pity the tireless arms of the clock that never stopped. Whenever I passed by, I would squint my eyes against the sun, crane my neck and wonder if that monstrosity was an inspiration for my headmaster's punishments at school. Did the tyrant make us stand long hours with outstretched arms after observing the clock's tirelessly moving hands? This dull clock in my room is so unlike the clock tower. Its drops of sound trickle on the placid surface of silence like a twig. I'm floating aimlessly. I still have six hours before the train departs. Sleep has been a rare luxury and insomnia is a slow poison I drink each night. Don't know why I feel the urge to reach for that cardboard box in the loft. It is the box with all my childhood memorabilia. I admit, I've rarely opened it. But every time I've accessed the loft to retrieve something, I've heard the contents of the box banging at the cover. It must be my own forgotten childhood keen to get out, adamantly demanding freedom. I've ignored these insistent noises, drowning them in a sea of urgencies, a task at hand or a thousand others in the waiting. Today, perched precariously on the aluminum ladder, on my shaky bow legs, I am reaching for it in all earnestness. The box still smells of my childhood, of the jasmine vines that ran always faster than I and my cousins could, 
along the left wall of the drive in the haveli right up to the porch of the massive twin mango trees which stood like gothic figures but gently held the rope swings of the rows of white rose bushes and the barricades of bougainvillea that often concealed my cricket balls in their thick fists before i climbed down from the loft let me hold the box closer and inhale mm. it's like my nose is mining for more treasures this familiar smell i gather from the school tie reminds me of my mother's hands tugging at it to get the knot in position coriander leaves plucked fresh from the backyard chopped onions turmeric garlic ginger and green chilies my mother wore this collage of smells every day along with those two gold bangles on her wrists it makes me long for the rest of her i need her arms to take me away from the gravity of my present life i'm pining for the affection and infinite patience that she had for her beloved son squatting on the floor i'm a child opening a birthday present wonder why i'm feeling a sense of mystery and novelty about this cardboard box let me open the lid and feign ignorance about its contents let me pretend that i don't know i will find exactly 17 marbles cream marbles parked in a corner of the box a train of 17 glass bogies waiting for the last 50 years to be flagged off from the platform of stagnation holding these riches from my past that once made me the envy of every child in the neighborhood for a fleeting moment i forget my present state of financial distress the divorce has left me i mean it's left a serious dent on my pocket aruna wanted an independent apartment near jaipur close to her spiritual guru's abode there was no option i had to buy it for her money's like soap it helps you wash off the stains of guilt though temporarily my hands freeze when i think of it and they stop exploring the contents of the box there were so many missed chances that we both had of saying no to a life of nuptial misery aruna always doled out her silly spiritually laced explanation for it we opt to endure certain experiences in life before we seek to find our true spiritual calling our final destination we all cast our fishing nets of hope and live off the catch of the day until we realize that there is no need to head to the sea anymore we are the fish and the net and the fishermen all at once i on the other hand have been a thinker and a doer with the spirit of inquiry never failing to walk beside me like a faithful shadow i've cast my share of fishing nets that i never caught anything more than a more than the drudgery of a bank job like my father and my grandfather is a different story sometimes i do scrutinize my dreams for they really too small 
or did everything I want just slip through the gaping holes in the tattered fishnets of my life? This box also has many broken dreams in it. Brushing my fingers is a purple kite string. It lies in the box in the formation of eight. Two little loops that prevent it from getting into a tangle. I wish I could rewind my whole existence and put it in a neat formation of eight. If it were possible, I would disentangle my life and wrap it on a wooden spool again. But life is not an hourglass that can be turned over to begin again. Listen carefully. Can you hear it too? I'm, I'm sure it is the rustle of a kite singing to the tune of the breeze. It is a song of blue skies filling with unfaithful clouds that change shape far too quickly for anyone to recall them by face. If memory serves me right, my father bought this string on the eve of Basant in 63. A mere mention of that season and a flood of memories of kite-flying conquests washes over me. The drab ceiling of my 10 by 12 room transforms into the deep ballroom of the sky. A thousand kites tango across the floor, seducing a new partner with their moves, inviting one another to a dance to death. When two kites are entangled in a passionate tango, then no that for the glory of the sport, one must perish, relinquish its reign in the sky to rise again like a phoenix from another terrace, flown by another excited boy. So it was on the basant of 63. The 1am alarm intervenes. It obstructs my flight of fancy and cuts my string short. But sleep loses another battle and leaves. This manila envelope looks eager to share its contents. As I turn it over, more memories in monochrome pour out, drenching my restless palms with the color of time gone by. Here's a special one. It's the Class 7 photograph that I think was taken mid-session on a crisp October morning. Let me turn it over to seek a confirmation. Yes, it is dated October 14, 1964. The whole class is seated in an orderly fashion. The uniform runs like a fabric across the picture, with only the face perched on a repeated pattern of tie knots and shirt collars changing. A pale stain has tiptoed onto the photograph over the years. It resembles the wine stains that my linen shirts acquire at parties. Their paleness claiming permanent residence on my shirts, compelling me to discard them. But this yellow stain on the photograph is different. I know this is staleness that time spills on the unattended and unremembered. I find it ironic that the yellow stain sits on Gaurav Mehta's face, covering half of it, giving his face two distinct shades. 
just the way Gaurav was, double-faced with all his shady secretive dealings and evasive mannerisms. It irks me that after all these years I cannot recall the names of half my classmates. The photograph looks like a bookshelf to me. And I can conveniently replace these familiar faces with books. That's what they appear to be, all lined up on a shelf in an orderly fashion. The first names I remember are pasted on the books as titles. But I've read none of these books till the end. I gradually lost touch with all my classmates. I still don't know which book is an engaging pulp fiction and which one is a dull, forgettable biography. Somewhere on this shelf, there must be a thriller. It would be the life of an adventurous risk-taker, something that I have only aspired for. I can't look into my own eyes in the photograph. They hold so much promise, now unfulfilled. Even without casting a glance, I'm convinced that if I were a book on the shelf, it would be wrapped in a prosaic brown cover, a thin edition with not much to say. I can see the title. It would be Insipid or Pedestrian, running down the slim spine of the book, barely legible. Strangely, no matter how hard I look, I cannot find suffixes of caste, religion or status to attach to any of these faces. A few nicknames are all I can recollect. None of us would hesitate to draw Marcel from each other's tiffin. It was immaterial where the food we shared came from, a Hindu, Muslim or a Sikh household. I admit it was that unhygienic, but sure as hell, it is how one should eat in a secular country. Hmm? I can't help taking credit for we are the irrefutable tiffin-sharing generation and it is due to our sharing of tiffins that terrorism and separatist forces have had to work so hard. As I try to put names to the faces, Anoop Kohl's name finds a match on the photograph. I remember these kind and gentle eyes of the magnanimous Kashmiri boy who had gifted me his entire stamp collection on my 12th birthday. I frantically searched the box for the collection of 389 stamps, not one more, not one less. Here they are. He leaves me in awe. This gesture from decades ago. Why do I feel this lump in my throat? As I go along, memories tagged to these familiar faces. In that age of innocence, friends were not slotted into professional, casual and personal categories. A flogging received from the headmaster for someone else's mischief was forgotten over a shared laugh the next day. No favour was ever extended to a friend with the expectation of being returned. Let me put this photo away. It has filled me with an alien lightness deep within. My eyelids feel the weight of sleep, but I'm unable to close my old box. Here I am, standing next to my bicycle in this photograph. I'm leaning against the whitewashed front wall of the Haveli. Can you, can you 
spot the broken paddle and the rusted metal bell wrapped around the bicycle handle like a friendship band? All these years later, I can see right through the obesity of the wall in the picture and the sparingly used tarmac road that ran behind it. Our extended Malhotra clan monopolized this road in the good old days. Each fall, the road would be covered with crisp leaves, shrugged off like bad debt from the impoverished poplar trees. The sound of cycle tires playing their music as they crushed these leaves echoes in my ears. One particular fall is vividly etched in my memory. It was when I learned to ride the bicycle. Sitting in this Room, decades later, I can still hear my father's heavy baritone. Shrey, you can do it now. I can feel the touch of his hand on my back and remember how he, at the count of ten, had let go, withdrawing his hand ever so tentatively. I had pedaled harder and harder, the moment Dad had let go, a free wind had clutched me by the arm, and the words of that first conversation with independence still ring in my ears. I never looked back to see Dad's face beaming with pride, but some instinct told me that he was smiling. The day Ankur, my own son, left home for Australia, he too never looked back at the front door to see my hesitant hand bidding farewell. And the bell on the wrist of the bicycle handle. I wonder if it is still rusting away in the old family home in Hoshiarpur where all the bicycles of the Malhotra cousins along with their stories and self-proclaimed legends are parked side by side. The bell had never been more than an ornament, ceasing to play its song at the command of my thumb within a week of its installation. I used to enjoy pedaling merrily to the rhythm of the bell, astonished at the sense of music little pieces of metal could possess. The temptation to unscrew the top metal dome and unravel the mystery it held had led me to unsettle the tiny gears inside. Thereafter, it never sang its rehearsed tune of Trin-Trin, Trin-Trin. Dad passed away within a week and never got around to keeping his promise. He'd promised to get my cycle bell mended. The bell too fell into a state of shock and grief like my mother, both rusting and mourning in silence for many years. I never discussed my dad or the rusted bicycle bell with mom, keeping my grief to myself and to the stars I gazed at night. It was only on clear starlit nights that I carefully unwrapped my grief and shared it with inquisitive stars. I would sit for hours until they blurred into a single light, dissolving in my tears, lending a salty aftertaste 
Don't misinterpret this hint of moisture around my stubble today. It is, it is just the result of another argument with sleep. But I won. Instead of going to the bedroom, I'm going to the kitchen to brew a strong coffee in the coffee maker. I lost my love for tea many years ago. Let me admit, this kitchen has never developed a fondness for my presence. Over the last three years, I have attempted to cook, do the dishes and warm food in the microwave, but to no avail. Even the aluminium vessel Aruna used to brew tea in has denied acceptance. Not once has it returned the same flavor and aroma that it faithfully did to Aruna whenever she brewed tea. This place, this kitchen has stayed like a woman in mourning ever since Aruna left. It refuses to wear the flame bangles on the range or the musk of sumptuous dishes or the bindi of a flame from the lit matchstick or the vermilion of powdered spices. Even empty utensils refuse to clank in argument and all the containers for provisions hold only a steady meniscus of sorrow. I prefer to retreat as soon as my coffee is done. In here, I feel the weight of expectation that the kitchen still exerts on me. Everything in here seems to be questioning me about Aruna's return. But I've run out of excuses. I've run out of excuses. It would be best to seek refuge in the box of my memories. I may sound cynical, but I'm afraid the picture I was looking at might have changed. Offended by my absence. The past might have altered its facts while I was gone, but... Of course it has not. The picture is still the same underneath my right foot. See how the half-broken pedal hangs like a limp limb, reconfirming Pratama's existence in my past and allaying all my doubts. Where's that class photograph? Let me look at it again. I feel like the class monitor again, with my index finger conducting a roll call of familiarity, moving along the rows, touching every face, remembering names in that sequential order. There she is, third from left in the sixth row, Pratima Bhatia. Frozen in time, frozen in time with her thick black tresses. I still remember the color of her eyes. That would change from dark to light brown in too much sunlight. And the red ribbons in her plates that fluttered like flags announcing her arrival from a distance. She had that gait I could never define. It was as if she was walking to the tune of some unhurried piece of classical music. She was made to sit next to me in class for three consecutive years and I cherished each moment. With each passing year, I had felt increasingly conscious of the accidental brushing of our elbows while writing. The awareness of her fragrance had grown in my senses and lingered till late after school. The sound of her laughter I carried it like coins that jingled in my heart's pocket all night as I walked with her 
in my dreams. She was an army officer's daughter and left school mid-session. The day the vacations began. It was perhaps a week after the day my intentionally parked bicycle got tangled with hers. And the clumsy struggle to separate them, I, I just broke the pedal. She never returned after the vacations. And I ferried half a right pedal and half a love story till I finished school. Never bothering to mend either the pedal or my heart. Let me put these pictures back into the box. Yes, I'm afraid of losing my precious possessions. The half pedal, the rusted bell, the rest of the bicycle from my memories. I wonder how the bicycle is doing in the old Haveli. It must be awfully rusted. The rims without the usual shine and spokes broken like my missing teeth. The tires must be deflated and half buried in dust with no zest for travel like my own sinking spirits right now. I can't even repair and reassemble the bicycle in my mind. Here I am in this picture, standing at the old intercity bus stop, where I would often alight from a bus bringing me back from my maternal grandparents' house after another carefree summer vacation. Instead of finding my way through the busy street and the market with its exciting smells and sounds, my memories are taking me on a bus back to Grandma's house. Thirty kilometers away, making me frantically search for her last picture. I'm sure I had it somewhere in the box. It was the one I had taken to the photographer for enlargement and touching up just before the last rites ceremony after she had passed away. Here it is. I told you it was in the box somewhere. Just look at her. Tufts of white hair on grandma's head remind me of the inexhaustible stock of tails she had. Her patient eyes had developed cataract while waiting for my maternal uncle who never returned from the Indochina War of 62. Her eyes always taught me lessons in hope. I remember her slightly bent back, like the branches of the trees in her garden that withstood the weight of all grandchildren who climbed up and plucked fruit all summer. The wrinkles and freckles on her face ascended to become stars in the night sky. And when I took to stargazing, I was convinced that I had already seen the constellations on her calm face. I was sent by my mother to the photographer to get this picture touched up with color, but I had turned back from the photographer's counter telling him, your colors will not be right for my grandma's last black and white picture. I guess that was the day I decided that I would make my memories always in black and white. Here's another photograph. This one gives the best view of the Haveli's facade. Those massive grilled windows must be staring at the road like weight-weary eyes. But none of us has ever returned. The window panes must be missing the fear of being struck by a cricket ball. 
I can imagine the dense overgrowth in the front lawn. I know that when I walk through the impossible sadness of wild grass, it will target my toes and ask for an explanation for my absence. The mango trees would have gone old, their backs bent with age, and the weariness that solitude invariably inflicts. This photograph is a swing door. I've opened into the past. It's a swing door I've opened into the past. I vividly see all the births and deaths, the comings and goings I've witnessed here through the decades. Somewhere inside my soul, something snaps. I want to board that train sooner than later. It is 4.30 in the morning and the temple around the corner has started to play the usual bhajans. I close my eyes to the rhythm of the temple bells. It is a dream calling me into its world. I am riding my bicycle through the familiar lanes, pedaling harder every second. I can see my son, a blurred image in the distance waving at me. My classmates looking through windows and egging me on as I pass them by. I see my father in the distance, his hand raised, wishing me well. My mother is standing next to him. And as I look in her eyes, I sense an ocean of love welling up. I look ahead again and I see a warm light beckoning me. It emanates from the lamp on my study table. I see myself reading my favorite book, Tagore's Kitanjali. The road beneath the wheels of my bicycle is aglow with yellow gifts from the Amaltas trees that stand on either side. There is a wind too, unsettling my linen shirt and the tufts of white hair falling across my forehead. An aftertaste of five sweet almonds lingers a memory in my mouth. Suddenly I know that I've made my journey no longer a reluctant traveler. I've arrived home. I've arrived home. The train departs at 6.25 a.m. An hour later, the body of a man in a white linen shirt with five soaked almonds clenched in his fist is taken away in an ambulance. An unclaimed suitcase remains at the railway platform.